at this time, we want to extend a special welcome to all those who uh, join with us at the service that are not in our facility with us. We want to extend a special welcome to all of you in Marina, uh, Marina campus, also our Padre campus, both the morning and evening. And of course, we have many that join us online each and every Sunday. And then, of course, a big welcome and a shout out to all the inmates uh, that join us in the Soledad State Correctional Facilities and throughout a Monterey County uh, jail system. So let's give them all a big, huge compass welcome this morning. Thank you for joining us today. So let's start off with a really fun and entertaining question. How about that? What would you do and how would you respond if you were accused of a crime you didn't commit? Kind of lighthearted, huh? Would you defend yourself? Would you fight it? Would you state your case forcefully and repeatedly so that everyone knew that you were innocent of this charge? I think most of us here in the room today would agree that we have a fight, a right, I'm sorry, to fight for our innocence. We have a right in many cases and a need to defend ourselves against false accusations. You know, thankfully, it's built into our American DNA, isn't it? It's part of our Constitution, this idea of being innocent until proven guilty. But what if the roles were reversed? What if uh, you were guilty? How would you respond at that point? Would you fight for your innocence with the same fervency? Or would you simply just admit your guilt in the hopes that you would uh, receive a lighter sentence? Would it depend upon how much evidence the prosecution has? Hmm. Well, these types of decisions are being played out each and every day in courtrooms across our country and around the world for that matter. But in a similar way, this type of controversial court battle is being played out in our next 316 story today. Let's take a look at Daniel 316. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're three Hebrew teenagers, talking to a Babylonian king, said, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Daniel 3.16. Now, to refresh our memory, we are in week two of a 10-part series entitled Discovering God, 10 Ways That God Shows How Much He Loves Us. And we discussed last week that most of us know John 3.16. And in the Bible, it's probably the most famous Bible verse in all of the world. It's on bumper stickers, and you'll probably see it in the stands of football stadiums uh, today on television. But we also learned that there are many more 3.16 verses in the Bible. Specifically, there are nine more 3.16 verses just like it. And here's the cool part. We discovered last week that each of these 3.16 verses are a 316 story. And they tell us a little bit more about God and his character and his, his nature. And it all leads to this conclusion because it shows us how much God loves us. Well, today is no exception. Today we bump into, as I mentioned, three Hebrew heroes. And they refuse to surrender to the cultural norms of their society. It's interesting because although this story that we're going to look at today it happened 2,500 years ago, but the way they handled their situation will impact many of your lives here today because it's very similar. Here's the main message, the big point, the takeaway, the 30,000-foot view. The main message of our hero's story is to never compromise, never compromise to the cultural pressure surrounding you. 
Why? Because you have an all-powerful God behind you. So you never compromise because you have an all-powerful God. You see, friend, when you and I stand up, when you and I stand out, when you and I stand strong for the kingdom of God, that's precisely when your Christian faith and your Christian experience becomes breathtaking. You know, I ran into a book a few years ago written by a pastor named Kyle Eidelman. Kyle pastors a rather large church in Louisville, Kentucky, Southeast Christian Church. And he wrote a book called Not a Fan. And it's a comparison between are you a follower of Jesus or just a fan of Jesus, like a sports fan. And he writes this in his book, which I love. He says, I really hope you weren't looking for a book about Jesus, the t-ball coach, (laughs) who will pat you on the head at the end of each game and tell you not to forget your free snow cone before you go home. That's how many people view their Christian experience. It's a feel-good thing. But what Kyle is saying is, no, 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 it's a lot deeper than that. In fact, he goes on in his book and he writes the following. When Jesus describes the the life of a follower, he described a risky adventure. Jesus is countercultural in an uncool way. And he loves you so much that he tells you the truth, even when it's hard to hear. He loves you. And he loves you and talks more about repentance than forgiveness because of that. He talks more about surrender than salvation. He talks more about sacrifice than individual happiness. And he concludes with this final point. Following Jesus is anything but easy. Hmm. Interesting. So I want us to discover today how to become what I call fully engaged followers of Jesus Christ. As we look at this compelling an extremely captivating story found in Daniel chapter 3. So let's begin our story by first looking at the self-importance of a king. The self-importance of a king. Now in Daniel chapter 3, we find this king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he is a very insecure and I'll say arrogant king. History records that he was a king of actually great status at his time. His kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon... Uh, ruled much of the known world. The Babylonians, they made large contributions to the fields of mathematics and uh, literature, also to philosophy and, of course, military warfare. They were indeed a formidable uh, empire. Yet on the flip side of all those great contributions, we find a tyrannical rule that existed to crush and eradicate those who were not loyal to the throne. Worship anything but the king would not be tolerated. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we find out what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar actually ended up making a gold statue, 90 feet tall, that's nine stories, and nine feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So this is what the king did. What was the purpose of this uh, golden idol, this image? Well, the purpose of the image was to proclaim to the world that the reign of Nebuchadnezzar would be forever. However, like all tyrants, his days were numbered. Eventually, history tells us that the Babylonians were overthrown and conquered by a rival nation. But not before, not before God actually ended up utilizing this arrogant and authoritarian king to reveal something to the world something amazing about God's own nature. And that's what we're going to discover today. 
What did the king do after he had this uh, big uh, golden statue uh, put on the plain of Dura? Well, he sent messengers throughout the entire kingdom to gather all of the leaders to this big field uh, near modern-day Iraq, actually near the city of Baghdad. And here's what verse 5 and 6 tells us he did. When you hear the sound of the musical, musical instruments, you're to bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar, his gold statue. And anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Woo! That's not good. That's not good. He left no room for dissension. There was no discussion of tolerance of other views. There was no room for opposing views. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't care. The decree was simple. Bow or burn. That was your choice. So here's a question for all of us to consider. What would you do in that situation? Would you bow? Or would the iron rod of your will steady your nerves as you stood against the culture in a divine act of holy insurrection and worship to God? Hmm. I ask that question because, regrettably, I'm sure some of you are facing a situation similar to this in the world today. The decree has been spoken. The trap has been set for you. The cultural norms have been dictated. And if you refuse to bow, if you refuse to go along with the crowd, you will be thrown into the furnace of social or career termination. This is a real story for you today. And some of you are facing that or may be ready to face that in the coming months and years ahead. Everything you work for will be burned at the altar of capitulation, laying at the feet of cultural compromise. It's a real-life decision. In verse 7 of chapter 3, we find out what happened. All of the people bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everybody did it. The whole crowd, the whole culture, the whole high school, everybody bowed to this statue. However, there was a tiny little glimmer of hope. There was a little light shining in the darkness because the Bible records for us that there were three Hebrew leaders who decided to refuse the command of the king and in their moment of decision, their commitment to a heavenly king far outweighed the threat of an earthly king. I like these guys and I think you're going to grow to like them too. Let's find out who they are in verse 12. Verse 12, but there were some Jews. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. So after everybody bowed, and these three chose not to, some other leaders in the kingdom went to the king to report on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's what they said. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods, and they do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Wow, I love this. These guys are great. They have courage. They have a backbone. Now, in case you're not familiar with the historical context here, a few years prior to this event, the people of God, the nation of Israel, was actually taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, and the um, survivors of that captivity were taken off, carted to Babylon. There was a small remnant uh, left in Israel, but the majority of people were taken to Babylon, especially the young leaders with uh, some sort of potential. And these three Hebrew leaders were three of those young leaders named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's what happened historically why they were in Babylon. 
Now, the ramifications of the king were swift. What did the king do? What was, how was he going to respond to all of this? We pick it up in verse 13 in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard of this, that they refused to bow, the Bible says that he flew into a rage. And he ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. Here's the court scene. What are you going to do? Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true? Is it true that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? Is that true? The scripture goes on to say, I'll give you one more chance. I'll give you one more chance to bow down. Maybe you made a mistake. Maybe you didn't understand. This is your moment to follow the crowd, to do what everybody else is doing, to make sure you follow the cultural norms of this, of this culture. I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then here's the question. What God will be able to rescue you from my power? Wow. This king was full of himself, wasn't he? He really thought pretty highly of himself. Sounds like some people we know today, doesn't it, in our world? Hmm. What would you do in that situation? It's very fascinating when you think about it. I hope you never have to get put in that situation, but if you do get put in a situation like that, I want to encourage you today. I want to give you some resources of how to respond. Winston Churchill, who knew something about responding to oppressive situations, he had an interesting quote. He was the prime minister of England when the Nazis were dropping bombs over all of England. Here's what he said. To every man there comes in his lifetime that special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder And he's offered that chance to do a special thing. Unique to him and fitted to his talents. Wow. You know, the tap on the shoulder must have felt like a divine punch in the arm for these three Hebrew teenagers. But either way, in their moment of truth, they responded in a way that I think still inspires the hearts and minds of believers today. So let's continue our story by looking at the second thing. And that is now the steadfastness of their faith. Put that in your notes, the steadfastness of their faith. So immediately following the king's threat of being literally roasted alive, our three Hebrew heroes responded without reservation. I can't wait to hear what they have to say. In verse 16, here it is. Nebuchadnezzar, we do not, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. I love that. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve, oh, he's able. He's able to save us. And he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I like these guys. They're clever, respectful, but bold. They were straightforward, unashamed, with spiritual ice water running through their veins. They answered the king's question of what God will be able to rescue you. And they answered with an unwavering reply, Our God, that's who. The biblical reply was, the God whom we serve is able to save us. And I believe the boldness in their voice would have been inescapable. Could you imagine the other people in the court, the king's court, who was hearing this happen? What if you would have been there and you were one who bowed? How would you be feeling right now? What would you be thinking? Would you be asking yourself, what's wrong with these guys? Did did they lose their mind? What's wrong with these guys? Why would they risk their lives like this? Don't they know what's coming? Or maybe they knew something. Maybe they knew something that nobody else knew. 
Maybe they understood something that very few people, even in our culture today, understand. Maybe they grabbed a hold of something that I want you to get a hold of today. Maybe they understood there's something bigger than any king. There's something deeper than any threat. There's something more intense than any furnace. There's something that transcends a situation and can provide deliverance no matter the outcome. I think that's what they understood. God's about to do something. Nudge your neighbor with your elbow and say, God's about to do something. Now nudge him and say it like you mean it. God's about to do something. Yes, God's about to do something. You see, this something they knew is how they could powerfully share these life-altering words. We do not need to defend ourselves, Men and women, you do not need to defend yourself. You see, these are the same words that Peter shared when he was arrested for preaching the gospel. And they told him, stop telling people about Jesus. It's bothering us. It's offensive to people. What does Peter say? Do you think God wants us to obey you or to obey him? I like that, Peter. It's the same thing Paul said when he went through all of his shipwrecks, all of his beatings, all of his things that he went through. He says, oh, these little troubles that we're going through, oh, they're just getting us ready. They're getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all of our troubles seem like what? Nothing. Nothing. It's the same word Job used when Satan was allowed to come and take everything he had, his family, his possessions, all of it with the hopes that he would turn his back on God. And Job refused to turn his back on God and said, I know there is someone in heaven who will come at last to my defense. I don't need to defend myself. God will defend me. And friend, it's the same thing Jesus said when he hung upon the cross and bore the weight of all of our sin in Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You see, in all of these situations, if you think about it, the response is the same. Something greater is happening in and through my situation. A situation is not here to define me. The situation is here to design me. That's what God's up to. It's not, why me, God? It's, God, what are you doing through me? God, what are you trying to accomplish in this situation? You see, men and women, when we get to the place where our spiritual maturity is an automatic, what now, instead of, why me? That's when we get to the place where we will have the bravery and the steadfastness and the strength of these Hebrew heroes. So many times something happens to us and we look up at heaven and we say, God, why me? Why now? That's not what we should be asking. We should be asking, what now? What do you want to do through me now, God? What's going on in this situation? Now, it's interesting as we go on through the story in verse 18, just to make things very clear, explicitly clear, these guys went so far as to even declare the following. They said to the king, but even if God doesn't deliver us, in other words, even if we are sacrificed, even if we are martyred for the kingdom of God, we want to make it clear to you, king, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Wow, these guys were bold. They were strong. They understood something. They got a hold of it. And what happened? Well, Nebuchadnezzar was furious at this point, furious at this point. He was fuming as if smoke was coming out of his ears. You think I'm exaggerating? Let's look how the Bible describes it in verse 19. 
Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. I looked that up in the Bible in the original Hebrew. It means his face was distorted with rage. <laughs> you ever seen that? They get all bent up and squishy face, you know? They look, that was Nebuchadnezzar. The ruler of the entire world could command armies. People would flee and, and bow before him, but not these three. Even if you throw us in, king, we're not budging, pal, because our God will save us. Who can save you from my power? Our God can save us from your power. Oh, I love that look. <laughs> so what happens? He was filled with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. I don't know what a furnace is usually heated, but seven times is pretty hot. So imagine a, a Division I narcissist not getting what he wants. That's what was happening here. This king was so full of himself, there was no room for anyone's opinion but his own. But what would happen? What's going on in this story? How would it all play out? Would God deliver them or would they be buried alive and burned alive? Huh. Let me pause for a minute and ask an important question. I ran across, across this quote a while ago. It's from Billy Graham. Some of you obviously know who he is, one of the top Christian leaders and influential uh, Christian leaders that we've had in our generation. He once asked this question in a group of uh, believers. He said, what will you be like as a Christian 10 years from now? Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? What will you be like as a Christian 10 years from now? He went on continued to say the following, many will be walking with Christ and serving him, but for others there will be tragedy because 10 years from now they will have lost their burning zeal and love for Christ. So let me ask you again, what kind of Christian will you be 10 years from now? You see, the reason I'm asking that question is because the way you and I handle the fiery furnaces of our life between now and then will determine what type of Christian we will be in 10 years. And I want us all to consider that. Listen, friend, if you're here today, don't be afraid of what's coming your way. Don't be afraid of what you're about to face. Don't fear. God has you covered. God's got you covered. The reason why God brought you here today is because you need to hear me say, God's got you covered. Don't be afraid. Now, getting back to our story, the king had the three heroes bound, and they were actually thrown into the furnace. They weren't saved. Nothing happened. They were thrown into the furnace. And in fact, the furnace was so hot, all of the king's soldiers that threw them in, they died as they threw them in. Now, what happens next, though, is nothing short of miraculous, or better put, nothing short of a manifestation. Because the royal, whole entire royal entourage was shocked to see with their own eyes what God did next. Let's continue with our story by looking at the surprising result. The surprising result. Here's what happens in verse 24. But suddenly, I love that. I love when God but suddenly does something. Isn't that amazing? That's what happens here. Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement. And he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men? And throw them into the furnace? 
Well, yes, your majesty, we, we, we certainly did, they replied. We did everything you commanded us. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, look. Look, he shouted, I see four men. I thought we threw in three. Well, how's there four? And now as there are four men, they're unbound. And they're walking around in the fire and they're unharmed. Didn't we juice that thing up seven times hotter? What's going on? And he says, and the fourth one looks like a God. God showed up. Wow. Looks like a God. You see, friend, in the midst of the fire, God was with them. In the midst of the struggle, God was their strength. In the midst of the brawl, God was in the ring. Their co-workers turned on them. The culture caved in on them. The king attempted to crush them, but God showed up and was right there beside them. That's the kind of God we serve. Now, 200 years before this event happened, there was a prophet named Isaiah, and he prophesied something very powerful that I think these Hebrew heroes understood. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, here's what was written. When you go through the deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up, and the flames will not consume you. Remember when I said they knew something? This is what they knew. They stood on God's word. David wrote hundreds of years before this event in Psalm 34, 7, if you honor the Lord, his angel will protect you. He will protect you. So you're starting to see why they had no need to defend themselves. You can start seeing it in Daniel 3, 16. We have no need to defend ourselves before you, O king. You see, friend, when God, when Christ died upon the cross and he rose again three days later, all the enemies of God were defeated in that moment. At that moment, every battle you and I will fight was already won. All the battles you and I will fight have already been won. You don't need to defend yourself because Christ has already defended you. So according to our 316 story today, God's in the midst of the fire, and he's not only in the midst of the fire, he's awaiting your arrival. Let them throw you in. Why? Because God's waiting. Let them think they've won. Friend, God's waiting. Let them hoot and holler and shout for glee. God is waiting for you. There isn't a body of water too deep that God cannot get to you. There isn't a river so fast that God cannot navigate the current. There isn't a fire so hot that God himself cannot consume it in the snap of a finger and the sound of his voice. You see, God can do all of this at the sheer sound of his voice and the determination of the pleasure of his will. Why? Because God is sovereign over all. We serve an all-powerful God. Here's a good question for you. Who was the fourth man in the furnace? Who was it? Theologians discuss this. It's a fun topic. Most theologians believe that the fourth man in the furnace is what's called a Christophany. So I'm going to teach you a little theological term here. A Christophany just means an actual appearance of Jesus prior to his coming to us at Bethlehem. The theological term is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Several times in the Old Testament, God decided to make himself known through various manifestations. And this story happens to be one of those times. But check this out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire as if they were never touched by the fire at all. Look at verse 27. Not a hair on their head was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. And the king was shocked. And here's how he responded. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. This is King Nebuchadnezzar talking now. 
Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, if they speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb. And their houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. What's wrong with this king, by the way? I just read that. Like, this guy's tearing people's arms apart. He's throwing people in fire. He, I think he's bipolar. I, I think, <laughs> think he needs our New Hope Counseling Center, right? This guy's a mess. But he says there's no other God who can rescue like this. Isn't that cool? Boy, this thing turned around. And just to put a cherry on top of the whole deal, check this out in verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Wow. Did you expect this result? This is the first time you've ever heard this story. You probably didn't expect this, did you? You see, we thought this story would end in destruction. In the end, the arrogant king promoted the faithful. Their need to defend their actions was unnecessary because God was with them. So what does that mean? It means no matter what you're facing today, men and women, as you put your complete trust in Christ and quit trying to solve your situation on your own, he will give you the way out. That's what this story is telling you today. So how do you know what God wants you to do? Well, sometimes you have to spend some time with him in the furnace. Really? Yeah, sometimes. That's what happened in the story, right? They took it all the way to the end. And who was waiting for him? Jesus. Sometimes you have to spend time with him in the very fire. You spend time with him in the very struggle. And you know what you'll discover when you do? His presence is very real. And his presence is there. He's the fourth man in the fire. And as you honor God in your life, he will defend you, the scripture says. That means he will lead you and he will guide you and he will promote you. Now for some of us, the promotion will take place this side of heaven. For others, the promotion will take place on the other side of heaven. But God will promote us. Now, in keeping with our theme of the series, we're learning one new attribute about God in each one of these three 16 stories that we've looked at. And the attribute or the character trait that I want to teach you today is we learn about God in Daniel 3.16 is that God is an all-powerful God. That's his attribute. You can write that down in your notes. Theological word for this is omnipotent. Omni means all, potent means powerful. So omnipotent means God has unlimited power. Remember the king's question earlier in the story? What God will be able to rescue you from my power? So arrogant, right? So boastful, just like our world today. The answer is very simple. The power of our God, that's who. The power of our God working through us. You know, the scripture is clear that God is strong and mighty, Psalm 24. Nothing's too hard for God to accomplish, Genesis 18, Jeremiah 32, Luke chapter 1. God is called almighty. He holds all power and authority, 2 Corinthians 6 and Revelation 1. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, Ephesians 3.20. All of those references should be in your notes to study later this week in your life groups. You see, God's infinite power always connects to his other traits. Some people say, well, I don't like that God's got all this power. Can he use that for a bad way? Yeah, it can happen if somebody doesn't have the other traits to go with it. That's why it's so important for us to understand all the traits of God and the character natures of God. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we see that in our world today. But God's not a tyrant. God's not a dictator because God has other traits. Not only does he have all power, he has goodness and mercy and grace. And that's why you and I can trust him. That's why his power becomes your best defense because of the nature of God. Now, as I wrap this up, we've talked about God defending ourselves 
are defending us from situations and struggles of life that we face. There is an even greater matter in which all of us need Jesus to be our defense. And that is our impending date with eternity. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 that is appointed for man once to die, and then after that comes the judgment. That means that one day, each and every one of us in this room will stand before our creator to give an account of our life. And at that moment, you and I, unless you've lived a perfect and sinless life, will need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. And the Bible is very clear, and your personal life experience would agree, that everyone has sinned. And we all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Isn't that true? The Bible teaches that when we stand before the throne of God, if we have accepted the free gift of salvation, that on that day, Jesus will say to us, charge his deeds on my account. I paid for that on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's what the Bible says. Jesus will say, I'll defend you. I'll be your defense. Tuck in, follow behind me. I'll take care of it because I know the Father. I got you covered. I'll defend you. But it's a free gift and you have to accept it. You see, one thing we've learned about God and his nature is God won't force you and I to accept his free gift of forgiveness. You have to accept it. You have to receive it in order for it to be applied to your life. In 1829, a man named George Wilson from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, robbed the United States Post Office, the U.S. Mail. And unfortunately, he killed someone in the process. Wilson was later arrested, brought to trial. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to be hanged. Some friends intervened on his behalf and were able to obtain a pardon for him from President Andrew Jackson. But when George Wilson was informed of this, he actually refused to accept the pardon. The sheriff assigned to carry out the sentence refused to enforce it. How could he hang a pardoned man? An appeal was sent to President Andrew Jackson, and the puzzled president turned to the United States Supreme Court to decide the case. Chief Justice Marshall ruled that a pardon is just a piece of paper. It only has value if accepted by the person accused. Hmm. It's hard to believe that a person under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon, but if it's refused, it has no effect. George Wilson must be hanged. So George Wilson was executed, although his pardon lay on the sheriff's desk. So too, I believe, many people reject the free gift of salvation by refusing the pardon offered to them by Jesus. Friend, I want to encourage you with every ounce of strength I have in my body, don't reject the free pardon given to you by Jesus Christ. Allow him to be your defender, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And if you haven't done that yet, I want to lead you in a simple prayer as we close out our service to allow Christ to be your defender. Will you do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are so encouraged by a powerful story, just an amazing story of these 
three Hebrew teenagers. They were young, 16, 17, 19, 20. They were young men. And they had some sort of fervency in their bones, some sort of uh, spiritual backbone that we desperately need in our culture today. Lord, there are so many situations happening in our congregation, different things happening in the workplace and on social media and their businesses. And we're being attacked on all different sides. But Lord, help us to stay strong. Be with us in the fire as your word promises us. Give us direction and guidance. I thank you for that. But Lord, I pray for anybody that is here this morning and they have yet to ask you into their life to receive you as their personal Lord and Savior. That today, Lord, will be the day that they accept the pardon. Today, let it be the day, Lord, that they say, I want Jesus to be my defense in heaven. In fact, if you're here this morning and you want to do that, you can pray this prayer right where you sit in the quietness, quietness of this moment. Just pray this. Dear Jesus, I come before you today and I recognize that I need you. I invite you into my life to be my defense. I recognize, God, that I have strayed from you. I recognize that my sin separates me from you. But starting today, I invite you to forgive me. I invite you into my life to be my Lord and to be my Savior. I want you to defend me in heaven one day. Help me be a Christian. I want to follow you. And Lord, wherever that prayer was prayed this morning in this room or around the network, I pray right now the presence of the Holy Spirit would just flood their heart and reveal to them that they now have become a child of the King, a child of God. Welcome to the family of God, and we thank you for it. And Lord, help us to uh, continue to give guidance and direction to those who have committed their hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Now listen to me, friend. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time to invite Jesus into your life, that's exciting. That's so cool. We had 14 people last weekend give their hearts to Jesus Christ in our services. And I'm going to invite you today, like those 14 people did just last week and dozens and dozens more weeks prior, you just head right out this door. There's an area out there called Next Steps. And what we want to do out there is get you a Bible and get you connected with Jim and the volunteers out there, get you plugged in when you're ready and find out all the different ways we can help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ to make this thing real in your heart and in your life. That's what we wanna do, we wanna help you. So when the service is over, just head out that way, go to Next Steps and get your free Bible, amen? We encourage you to do that. Hey, why don't you stand with me and we'll do our benediction and we'll send you out on the Lord's day. Father, thank you for again another beautiful day. May your blessing be upon the people of God. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, Compass. Have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you next week.